This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Hornswording. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've made some exciting new changes to our mead range, and in particular, our Yorkshire mead. So what we've done is we've completely rebranded, relabeled, and we've also added a couple of new flavours. Now, before I tell you about the new flavours, I want to tell you a little bit about the mead production, because this stuff is really something special. It's made at a micro meadery just on the outskirts of York, and it's run by a fellow called Pete Allenson, and this guy does everything himself. He keeps the bees, he sustainably harvests the honey from his own bees, he then ferments the honey to make the mead, he bottles the mead, he labels the mead, he sends it out to us, I mean this guy does everything and, and mead is what he does and that's part of why I think this stuff is so amazing because it has such a short journey from production to bottling to end user um, and I think it really is a special product. So we have our three traditional ones that you might have seen on the website before which are mead of Serenos, our mead of Brigid and our mead of Morrigan. The Morrigan is an elderberry, the Serenos is a heather honey and the mead of Brigid is a traditional. Now on top of that, what we've done is we've added a spice mead, which is Surtur's mead. We have Loki's Curse, which is a pineapple and coconut mead. And then we also have Tia's Sacrifice, which is a whiskey and cherry mead. And I mean, that stuff is absolutely beautiful. All these meads are available in 75 cl bottles and a 25 cl bottle, so you can sort of pick your size. On the website, we also pair it in a gift set where you get a 25 cl bottle and a small drinking horn. Perfect for gifting or a little treat for yourself even. Even if you don't like mead, just it's worth going and looking at this stuff just for the artwork and for the bottles. Saxon Storyteller has done the artwork and I mean, he's absolutely nailed it with these. The, the labels look beautiful and I'm really proud of it. I'm sure you can tell. So just pop over to the website, hornsofodin.com. You get 10% off for listening to the show with the discount code HORNS10. So you should pop that in at checkout so you're going to get 10% off your order, Horns 10, and honestly, just try this stuff out. It really is, I think, the best mead available. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everybody. Uh, this time, we have a very special guest. We have Professor Terry Gunnell, um, um, whom I must say I've had the privilege of taking several classes that uh, Gunnell have been teaching in different capacities. So I am very excited to see you again, Terry. Welcome. Nice to see you, too. Yeah, thank you for, for taking time. I have to say you are you are on my bucket list of guests for, for the podcast. So when uh, when you agreed, I was very happy, I have to say. Bucket list sounds a little bit ominous when it comes down to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's, there's a certain list of guests that we're slowly getting through that, that I really wanted to see appear. So uh, thank you very much for taking the time. You're welcome. Yeah, I mean... I, I read my first ever academic paper two days ago, and that was yours. <laughs> and I discovered this really awesome website that more people I feel should know about. I mean, I'm sure everybody knows about it, and I just don't, but it was academia.edu, where you, apparently you can just pull up all these really cool scholarly <laughs> papers. Um, but like I said, I'm, all these podcasts, I always come from like, the layperson side of things. And I, I think maybe people don't realize that that's, even there, it's probably very much normal to you guys, but I didn't know this place existed that had really cool papers on it. And I think also, um, 
not coming from a scholarly background, I think my fear was reading an article like that, that I wouldn't understand it. I almost like put myself down to, to, I was like, well, it's going to be too smart for me to read. I'm what's the, what's the point in me, me doing it? And then as I was reading, I was like, oh, this is just like reading something normal. <laughs> but that, and I, and I'm sure I can't be the only person who thinks I'm sure all the people listening to this will be like, oh, maybe I would be put off the idea of reading academic papers, but then mm-hmm. give it a go. I think is uh, what I'm trying to say. I, I, I would very much um, uh, say that I, agree with you on that because um that there's no reason to 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 sort of uh to 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 avoid at least trying to to get through um articles like these um out of the presumption that they might be too difficult and I mean, it also comes down to who is writing uh some have more of a pedagogical um approach and I mean, Terry, I've always enjoyed uh, reading your um, your publications, um, and I find them very very accessible in in, in general. So um, I guess that I also it's, to- it, it, it's important for it's part of our job as academics to to provide materials not just for other academics but also for for average interested people. There are a number of academics who will play the sort of academic game and drop in as. Like in the past, people used to drop in little jokes in Latin and Greek, uh, just <laughs> for the Latin and Greek people. Um, I, don't, I don't follow that. And no. certainly you find a number of academics who nowadays who, who will drop in all sorts of vocabulary that even I can't understand. Mm-hmm. So it's important, to my mind at least, um, when I'm teaching to try, uh, and the same when I'm writing, to try and have it as simple as possible. You can say what, anything you like as sim- in a simple fashion when it comes down to it. And I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it must have been very simple if I understood it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I you know, yeah. I, I don't want to do your writing a disservice either because it's not that it was simple. It's just that it was very understandable for uh, for me, and it was it was strange. I I think there was a moment in it when I was reading these words in kind of old Norse, even just like little things like theolve, that I just read it and I knew what it was, and I was like. Actually, I've learned quite a bit over the time of doing this podcast because usually I would have looked to that and gone, what the fuck is that? Like, how do I say that? Um, so that was, that was quite fun to do, to uh, figure out these, that I actually can read a few little words. <laughs> Blossoming into a real scholar, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's the first step towards the moon. You know, you're on your way. No, well, You'll never look back from here onwards. I think I'm... Yeah, at the start, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the very start. So, so Terry, we're going to talk about pre-Christian religion, I guess, in, in Scandinavia, um, mm-hmm. which I think is really an exciting topic. And it's one that we haven't covered too much, I don't think, Matthias. Yeah, oddly, we haven't, um, even though this is the Nordic Mythology podcast. and <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing this for a couple of years now. <laughs> yeah, we seem to get distracted on other other things. <laughs> Um, before we get into it too much, I think we should maybe start at what sources we have for what we know, I guess, about the mythology side of things and, and where where stuff comes from, I guess. Um, the majority, I assume, comes from Snorri. And, and my question was also on that, was how reliable is, is all this stuff? Mm-hmm. Well, of course... Uh, uh... Yes, you mentioned Snorri, and Snorri is is writing in about 1220 
and the manuscripts that we've got are from somewhere somewhere in the uh, later in the in, in the in the fourteenth um, century. But he's he is essentially a scholar, and one needs to bear that in mind. He's 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 on one side he's a bit like a member of the Sopranos in Iceland. He's he's a, a head of a mafioso family that's trying to take much of the country for itself. But he's an educated man. He's got aspirations to become the king of Iceland, or at least uh, um, the Earl of Iceland, if he can get on the right side of a Norwegian king. But he is a scholar, and he is collecting materials for other poets. And we need to bear that in mind, too. He's got a particular audience. On one side, he's writing for the Norwegian king, histories of Norwegian kings and Norwegian history. Um, on the other side, he's collecting material for people who want to continue the old poetic tradition. So he's putting together a handbook um, of poetic materials. And this is, uh, I said, 1220, so it's 200 years after Christianity has been accepted. But there are still people who are following the old art of poetry, which works by referring to mythological images. Um, so in a sense, one needs to understand the mythology to be able to refer to it. His material at the same time is not original materials. He's, he's referring to original materials, to ancient poems, poems that he regards as having been very, very old. Um, and this is, these are skaldic poems on one side, um, which have been composed by poets, named poets working for the kings of Norway and other countries in England, Denmark. Um, and then we have other material, which is the Eddic poetry. That's the original, if we can use the word original, which we must be very careful about. Um, that's the original, uh, the old poetry that he has a feeling of going back to pagan times. But that, to that material too, when he gets hold of it, of course, has been hanging around in post-Christian, uh, uh, after the conversion for 200 years. Mm -hmm. So this is, so on one side we have the Skaldic poetry, on the other side we have the Eddic poetry. And the Eddic poetry, he hasn't got the names of, of poets having composed this material. It's um, traditional material, material that's been passed on from one person to another to another. It's not composed by one particular person. And uh, if we want the, if we talk about the original Old Norse mythology, then that will be the material in the Eddic poems, mm -hmm. um, which, as I say, has been passed on from person to person over about 200 years. The mere fact that writing doesn't really start in Iceland until about 1100 means that this has lived in oral tradition um, for even long, for, for 100 years before that, and maybe even 200 or longer. Its roots might well go back to 700, 800 in the Do past. Do you think something would be more trustworthy if it was passed down through different people rather than one person just making a poem up and then telling it? Uh, that just came to mind. I was yeah, curious um, as to whether you would lean one way or the other to uh, reliability. I think when we get it, we need to get rid of the, we need to get rid of the idea of a poet composing a poem uh, and there being one particular work. Even down to Shakespeare's time, then. A Shakespeare play will be renewed and changed. It's under construction. And there is no real sense of ownership when it comes down to it. So even a poem by one of these skulls, they'll have improved it and changed it as time goes along. 
So one be one being more trustworthy than the other, really open to question. Um, the Eddic poems, when we look at a poem like Vodospel, which tells about the beginning and the end of the world, the, the, the prophecy of the seeress, we've got Christian elements clearly in the middle of that. We've got a different image of the of the world of the of the Jotnar, the ice giants, at the beginning of the poem compared to the end. So there are there are elements that come from different times that have been fused as part of these works as they've been passed passed down through people. So there are going to be elements there that may may well be very, very old uh, in these poems, but we don't know exactly how old. One of the best ways to decide is, is to see how much Christian influence there is in there. Mm-hmm. You're, you're passing this, this material like through a coffee filter to try and see what's, what's genuine, what seems to be genuine um, at the bottom of it. So, yeah. Um, Trustworthy, we, we, we don't just simply don't know. The only thing we know for certain about the age of these poems is that they are recorded in the um, Codex Regius, in the case of the Eddic poems, in about 1270. That's where that manuscript comes from. There's another manuscript with some of these poems about the gods, mythology, mythological poems, the 748 manuscript, from a little bit later on. Here is the bell going downstairs with a grandmother clock, by the way. Not not the gods interfering here and saying this is a genuine (laughs) piece of art here. Um, Scaldic poems, much of it is in Snorriswood. He quotes that. So we simply, uh, these are the only dates we know for certain um, about this material. Otherwise, we're we're examining it and and trying to make guesses at how old it might be. Mm -hmm. It's a long answer. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that, that, that's fine. Um, as we we like to say on this podcast, it's complicated. Which everything seems to be. It seems like we don't have a definitive answer to to anything almost. And the key thing about the, the the central thing about this material, which we to put it across simply, we need to get away from uh, the idea that this is the poetry in written form. Um, this material was composed in some form or another or passed on in the form of sound uh, much longer than that. It was composed in the form of sound and, and it was performed to people that didn't, who didn't read these poems. They experienced them, which I think is the best way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the listeners weren't blind. They were looking at a person in a particular space who, like a slam poet, is going to be referring to the room, changing the rhythm, bringing out words. We're dealing with something that's, um, if we look at the book again, in a sense, there's musical notation here. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can, If you listen carefully, you can hear what, what the words might have sounded like. If we look at the originals, this is a translation, sorry. Um, but the, uh, it's, it's the notes, mm-hmm. uh, the sounds are written down here in the form of words. So we, we, we have the music in there, um, uh, which will take us back a little bit to the, maybe the experience that, that people might have, how they might have experienced these poems initially in the form of sound. And that's central to my mind. You, you um, aren't, nobody experienced them at that time in the form of a book. Mm-hmm. So they were composed for sound is the point too. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I don't know whether the term living history is is the right one, but it's that kind of 
idea that you know they're living through it and it's they're not thinking of it as a written down bible type book that you refer to and go okay this is what i have to do to be a good a good christian or a good pagan it's more that you just you live in your life and there's things that you learn and pick up and and you do or maybe the reason for why things happen i guess mm-hmm. mm. yeah definitely so Harry, w- one question i wanted to ask you uh, in regards to all of this is uh can we pinpoint uh locations in 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 some of the poems like which which part of the world do they relate to there's ways of of deciding what deciding age sometimes by references to particular types of cup um that that will tell us that they're referring to something that comes from a particular time particular sort of glass cup um that certainly nobody in iceland would have ever encountered that will be one sign of age and provenance other times you've got references to trees for example, uh, like like the ash tree, for example, is a huge world tree. Is something an Icelander would only have seen if they'd gone abroad. Uh, the choice the choice of a, of a of an ash tree. The references to oak trees are going to take us back to um, to Scandinavia as well. Initially, of course, the poems have come have been washed up in Iceland. They've been brought here by people, but there are clearly there are clearly roots parts of them go back to Scandinavia. Um, same, if we t- if we look again at this poem, Völuspál, which is, is perhaps the most famous of the Eddic poems, it's the one that gives us the details about Ragnarok and the creation of the world and, and so on. Um, that poem is clearly based on a very male society. Um, it, it begins in a male society which is threatened by women coming from outside. Um, and this is not an average Icelandic farm by any means. We're clearly dealing with a warrior group. There's mention later on of these guys. There's no mention of them doing any farming anywhere. They're clearly people who fight. Mm. They want they want um, Monsanto crops, self sown self self sown crops. Uh, again, they're they're warriors. They aren't into farming. Mm-hmm. Right. So so here we definitely it's not an Icelandic society at heart in that poem even though we have references to what seem to be volcanic eruptions, which mm-hmm. will come from Iceland. And we have these references to Christianity, which have joined into that poem mm-hmm. as part of its soundscape. So, yes, there's a number, there's a number of elements. We have other ones, the, the poems about the heroes, um, like, like Sigurdur and Helgi in the heroic um, myths, which th- the root of these stories goes back to about 500, 600 AD mm-hmm. um, with, with the Germanic tribes. So there, there's material being passed on over a long, long period. There's mention of gods, for example, that clearly Icelanders had very little knowledge of, like the god Tyr, just as an example, and the god Utlur, who is mentioned in a, a number of these poems as, as being a, a very powerful god. Snorri knows hardly anything about Utlur or Tyr. Mm-hmm. So again, evidence that the poems are older than the Icelandic society in which they're, in which they're recorded. Right. And of course, yeah. by 1270, uh, these aren't pagan poems, ritual poems. They become something different. They're a bit like folklore right. uh, that's being passed on in a Christian society. Mm-hmm. I, I think that perfectly leads into my next question: was that this? Um, there seems to be this idea that the, there's one unified religion across all of Scandinavia. Like, 
like the, the same way that Christianity is or Islam, that, that, that everybody believes the same thing, no matter where you are, whether it's Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Iceland. Now, do you think that's, that is the case or do you think that it's wildly different from one side to the other, from north to south, or just your general geographic location or what other cultures are around you as well, I guess? There's a great deal of difference. As I say, we're looking at material here which would have been seen as folklore at that time, as tradition, as custom. And like, like folklore in, in later times, there's a huge variation between, say, south of Denmark to the north of Norway to the east of Sweden. Um, so, so folklore varies a great deal. And here, um, what is pretty clear is, is that, again, we're not dealing with, with a religion that's based on a book. Here, Snorri has a version of myths that he's, he's collected, a little bit like a folklore collector, the Grimm's from, from the, the 19th century. But this is just the material he's managed to get hold of. But I, I think, just, just sorry to interrupt, yeah, I, I, no I think that's almost maybe a misconception in, in the modern day, particularly against non-scholarly types, that you, you get the prose edda and people see it as almost a Bible Absolutely. and then assume exactly. that everybody in Scandinavia, in kind of the Vikings, believe this one set of rules almost and this one pantheon and this one creation story. Um, exactly. So totally. And, and we can see this immediately if we just look at the other evidence you were asking about evidence of old norse religion if we just look at the place names for example and, and one sees uh, those place names related where, where a god is referred to tyr or freyr or, or Odin or anything of this kind and you'll see there is a big difference between the different countries again denmark has tyr odin freyr uh, sorry tyr odin and and um and thor if you go to, if you, you find Thor, in fact, all over the area, um, in Sweden and Norway as well. But Sweden has a lot of re references to the god Freyr, for example, which is backed up by the literature, which says that the Swedes were crazy Freyr, Vanir worshippers. Um, that's the immediate uh, evidence that there, there is difference between areas. When we go on to the Icelandic sagas uh, and the Book of Settlements, which describes Iceland as settling here, there's no mention of the god Odin there at all, um, certainly amongst the settlers. They all seem to, uh, if anything, that it's either the god Thor or the god Freyr that's referred to. Um, Odin only really comes up in the poetry. Same with the poems, as I, as I said before, too. There's, there's, there are differences across the area. So we have to expect that what Snorri is presenting is influenced on one side by the fact that it's Iceland, which means it's going to be Western Nordic beliefs. And then he's very fond of Odin, and he, he's, he's very fond of the Norwegian royal families, and he wants to keep them happy. Um, and the poets were rock stars of the, uh, of, of the Norwegian court at the time, and he's to think of them in that sense. They, they mm -hmm. weren't typical Icelanders. They lived off the Norwegian court by praising kings and... Uh, giving pictures of their world and their achievements. So they're not typical Icelanders either. So, and certainly they're going to refer to Odin because he's the god of poetry. He's their mm -hmm. private god. So on one side, yes, we need to, need to expect a great deal of difference and variation, partly depending on whether people, where people are living, um, whether they're closer to Germany or closer to the Baltic countries or to Britain. It's going to change over time. Uh, connecting mm -hmm. on cultural contact, cultural contacts, 
It's also going to change on whether you're people who who do a lot of fishing and sailing, or whether you're war, people engaged in warfare, or you're people engaged in farming. To finish that off slightly, you're going to hear a number of people who will say that yeah, farmers worship one one type of god, uh, warriors worship another one, and people who are priests, for example, worship another one. Certainly, in the case of the warriors and the kings, there's very much a close connection to the world of Olden and warfare. Otherwise, there is a farmer in Iceland is is a farmer and a chieftain and a poet and a priest. All of these jobs, and we hear of each of them in the sagas having just one particular god that they would go to, rather than choosing uh, choosing one god out of several that they would have um, gone to for different purposes. So this connection between um, their way of living and the gods certainly applied in some cases, but in other cases not. Mm. Um, there's one main god, a little bit like in Christianity, to my mind. Is that is that perhaps a uh, um, later Christian writer's interpretation of how they might have done it, or is that a, uh, could that be a uh, more like a, a, a special element of of Icelandic pre Christianity, so to speak? I think in general, um, yes, as I said, there is to, to a degree. Snorri, when putting together his mythology, has a particular agenda. Um, behind what he's doing, and the way he presents the gods it has it involves a particular agenda. The idea of a pantheon, a little bit like in Greece. If we go to Greece, we discover different islands have different particular gods, and it's it, to my mind the evidence that we have in the sagas, which are based on family memories in Iceland, uh, oral tradition again, what the family has passed on. These suggest that people had a, had a single main god. And of course, when you intermarry with somebody else, maybe who comes from a family that worships Freyr, you, you may well get two gods within the family somewhere, but there's no real evidence of them having a whole choice. Um, on the other hand, uh, market towns and the king's court in Norway and Sweden and Denmark, these are almost naturally going to, going to be involve people from all over the place in a sort of pseudo-family, who are all coming there with their gods, their individual gods. And one way to get an army behind you of people coming from different places, which is what these new kings were doing, was to create a new pseudo-family with a new top god, a little bit like the king is the pseudo-father of mm. a family of warriors who've left their own families and come to join. The warrior hall is very much like the image of the warrior hall created with Fervalha, for example, mm -hmm. if this makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You haven't fallen asleep yet. You're still staying awake pretty well. No, we will. <laughs> we will. I'm fascinated by this. Yes. Um, so, so, so do you think that, would people have, have picked their own god individually and then there would be like an over -god, overall god for the, the village? Is that how it would work? In terms of the village, there aren't many villages. We have communities. We have people right. living in valleys, for example, or, or in a particular area. This is your identity is associated within your small area, within your wider area. Okay. You understand what I mean? And that's usually going to be a family. So mm -hmm. there will be a family main god 
and that will be sort of traditional with roots in the tribe. Uh, and, and of course, if we go back to Tacitus, even earlier evidence, this goes back to 100 AD, roughly, Roman times. There we know about people with parts of tribes. So you have a wider tribe and you have different families belonging to it, a little bit like Scottish clans, um, a sort of clan society. The trouble is that when Snorri writes his history of Norway, which is the next history, then we've jumped straight to, jumped straight to, to nations. Uh, the, the movement going from small tribes to smaller to, to larger groupings, which are becoming uh, kingships, which is taking place in around about five to six hundred. Um, Snorri, of course, is much much later. But generally, we have this movement from an essential identity associated with a local area, which may be associated with a tribe. And later on, we have the kings trying to form national units, which mm -hmm. is very difficult um, within Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. That's and this is something we can see um, pretty clearly in the place name evidence, if you ask me. Um, one of the more fascinating things in the Danish area in particular, and also the southern Swedish area, which most of that part would have been Danish area at the time, right? We we get these place names that um, that mirror place names in Thuringia and Saxony. Um, the, the ones in the German area end on Leben, and that translates to life uh, in Old Norse and Leu in, in modern Danish. And th these these uh, suffixes they clearly suggest that a man has inherited land from his uh, his father. It, it, it's always male names, and these they start showing up around the five hundreds, right? So mm -hmm. so it's almost uh, it's almost as if we're getting a landed class in southern Scandinavia at that point, like the some incipient aristocracy, and of course that would also be reflected in the religion that exists, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, it makes perfect sense that oh, this little this guy over here, he's got his little plot of land, and then he has his little patron deity um, with that, right? Right, and and in a sense, if we look, it's, it's it's as we were talking about a little bit earlier, it's it's quite natural that a figure like Thor is central, um, especially if it's these Indo-European peoples. There's, there's a close connection here to figures like Jupiter and, and Zeus. Um, the, the thunder god that that is associated with fertility and war and and also and also the weather um, is a, is a very very much an all purpose god that we're looking at here. But what's happening in about five hundred is, in addition to a to a huge volcanic eruption that's taken place and caused all hell within Scandinavia as 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 crops are failing all over the place, making a need for people to extend their territory just to get food for their people. And what's happening then is, is also the, the, the development of these larger armies as rulers are starting to step out of an area where they could, which they could easily go around in just a, a day or so. They're now starting to take much larger areas. And the problem is when you start having large Danish armies, for example, attacking England, is that they're leaving their local place of worship, mm. um, where and, and and they would normally have had to come back there for their gods. Their gods stay at home. What the new rulers needed for their large armies to to get people to be prepared to die for them, to have their to witness their insides coming out for the for the for the king, 
is to do several things. On one side, you they've learned from Christianity about the idea of a heaven, a reward for behavior in this world. So it's 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 a good today is a good day good day to die. Uh, that you'll go on to heaven. We we get the same sort of idea with with um, Islamic martyrs who are going to go on to the next world and be rewarded there with 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 the virgins who are waiting for them, and these sort of ideas. So Christianity was the same sort of idea, Christian martyrdom. Um, so this this is one useful step to borrow from Christianity and create that. This is a warrior paradise where, as I've said, booze, babes, and and battles, uh, which is how they spend their days eating and fighting and and and, and boar. Uh, the other one that they're eating a lot I of roast boar there. I can't think of they three can... better bees. Yeah, exactly. And and at the same time, they needed a new type of religion that you could move um, from home, like Christianity. You can take, in a sense, Christianity can be anywhere. You can, and especially if you create a a, a new religion centering around the ruler whereby the new king in a sense as we get an english royalty has different blood in his veins he is semi chosen by god or is the god he puts on a helmet at a certain point as we've had with the sutton who helmet and one of the eyes is suddenly dark darkened and one of them lights up mm-hmm. suddenly the, the the ruler becomes odin for that moment and everybody in the room as they drink and they go, hear poetry telling them that they are in a, a mythological space, they're suddenly turned into the dead uh, as, as, as warriors like the Marines or the Hell's Angels. They've been initiated into being the Einherri, who are going to fight for the end of the world. They're ready for the final battle. So a sort of semi-mythological world that they're inhabiting here. So this is it's logical. This takes place in around as, as new kingships come, they, want, they need a new religion. So it's a very long answer. Religion seems like a really brilliant tool of manipulation. Definitely. And, and of course, the, the kings knew this with Christianity too. Oh, absolutely. If you, can, if you can get people to accept one single God, all the same God, they'll accept one single king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's one thing I definitely wanted to talk to you about was this idea of Valhalla and how similar it seemed to heaven. It certainly, and I guess my the question is, would they have seen it then how how modern people tend to see it now and i guess in, in the fact of like people who again aren't scholarly in this world and, and very kind of i don't want to say casually into this stuff but also like the viking bro type people i'm sure you've you've come across them um who are very much like i can't wait to die and go to valhalla and valhalla is this amazing place but also they're very much of this opinion of fuck christianity i hate christianity and it's and i always feel like can you not see the the almost irony in this that Valhalla, the Valhalla that you were at least talking about and wanting to die and go there, and and it's very much similar to the Christian heaven. It's really similar. Can you kind of not see the yeah. irony here? Um, so I, I to to make a, a long question a little bit shorter, I guess is is do you think that they would have seen it the same way that kind of like these modern this modern interpretation of it as so closely linked to to this heaven idea? It's it's very as we as I mentioned earlier on in connection with Vodospar, there are there are clear Christian elements coming into the old Norse beliefs, which the people are picking up from from market towns and from travel and trade and whatever else. Certainly, anybody going to England is going to be encountering Christianity, 
or to Ireland, where which the, the 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 Norse had a lot of connections to. There's no real evidence of them hating Christianity in itself. Uh, there's a strong belief that people have their own beliefs, their own gods, uh, and elements of almost encouraging, okay, let's take the Christian God in as well with the rest. Um, but what's what's happening for these uh, new rulers is that to be able to do trade with Carolingian Europe, this is the Europe of Charlemagne and the, and the other new empress, you needed to have some connection with Christianity in one way or another. We've Certainly we've seen examples of these crosses and Thor's hammers being made from the same mold, for example. Pretty useful if you if you're a if you're a if you're a if you're a, a merchant and you can't do trade with somebody because you're just wearing the hammer. Okay, otherwise you switch switch around or you go through a, the first step of Christianity. You you accept the cross um, mm. and blend. No problem with that. It's pretty easy. Um, and for most people, the early accounts of Christianity suggest that in, in one account we they seem to just understand it as a few days each year you don't you don't eat certain things okay you can survive that one uh in iceland when they when they became christian they were pretty happy with it until suddenly somebody said you've got to have a bath i.e you've got to go off to you've got to go off and get get baptized back to what the, what what does that mean uh, you've got to go in that lake that you've got to be kidding. Have you ever put a foot in that lake? Out of the question. Uh, let's go for a bit of a walk and find a hot spring somewhere. We'll go and wash in that one. Yeah. And that's as far as they understood it. There's, there's no, they don't read. There's no books in a sense available. So it's, uh, these rulers are working closely with Christianity. They, uh, when Christianity is accepted, it's very much top down. It's nothing like in, in, in Italy initially, which was bottom up from the roots. It's going top down um, from Constantine onwards. Um, so it's the first people to get to accept Christianity are these rulers who were already clearly borrowing ideas from Christianity. We find these parallels like the, the guy hanging from the tree who steps into the next world and comes back. The idea of of um, another world where, where, where you where, where you're rewarded for your life rather than concentrating on on reputation and fame in this world now at the moment. So these ideas are being adopted by these rulers for their for their warrior groups around them and their courts. Why not accept Christianity earlier? Because you'd then be giving away power to Rome. So you see, in a sense, you're you're halfway there. Um, with with the beliefs in Odin that are surrounding the courts and and the and the armies, um, okay. countryside is somewhat different. Is it? Uh, I mean, I guess um, the the shift to Christianity comes at the point where is more opportune for a ruler to be allied with uh, those southern neighbors and and get the backing from Rome than 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 whichever custom they might have in you know, Norway, Sweden, or Denmark, right? Absolutely. And then this, if we if we go through, Denmark is certainly following on from the trading towns, Reba and, and, and uh, Leira, for example. We see Christianity working through the market towns. They put down a, a sort of um, bridgehead in the market towns to be able to spread ideas out from there. And then they talk to the king and, in a sense, suggest to the king, yes, there's some pretty good trade deals to be done here. Mm -hmm. um, if you connect up with, in a sense, the EU, um, which which is what's going on, 
Um, and, and a sort of middle way is then taken up. And, and the rulers themselves have already realized that there is a benefit to have a movable religion centered around themselves, where they, instead of uh, nobody taking on the role of the god, they take on the role of the god. Mm -hmm. A movable religion that doesn't, uh, you know, involve taking a huge totem pole all the way from Norway across the North Atlantic <laughs> to Iceland. Absolutely. <laughs> or having to come back to your holy lake or your island or anything of this kind. Yes. Was the trouble with the big Danish armies that they wanted to come back home to harvest or to do local things. Mm -hmm. They wanted a new ruler of the family who could have come back to the local gods. Mm -hmm. um, so you wanted you want to get rid of that one. I want to want to kick something in here uh, too. So, so we've been talking a lot about how Christianity influences uh, sort of the fabric of of of, of paganism or, or whatever we want to call the, the those religions that existed at the time. Uh, but it also goes the other way, right? I mean, if we, if we look at the Saxon Gospel Helion, we can see how 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 Jesus is sort of more of a warrior character, and 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 everything is 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 set in in that little you know warrior universe of of northwestern Europe, right? Well, you well, you you got to sell him um, mm -hmm. as a figure to to this pretty warlike audience. Um, and, and you can't get them to read the Bible, of course, they're not going to read it. You've got to translate it in some way or another into, into a sense that, that the local people can understand. And hence we see this, this um, uh, letter from Gregory to, to, um, to I forget the name of the guy, in Britain at the moment, um, where, where Gregory says, don't try and rip up the temples, just rename them. Mm -hmm. Don't try and get rid of their festivals. Rename them mm -hmm. so that midwinter, the midwinter festival becomes Christmas. The 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 spring festival becomes Easter. The midsummer festival become becomes St John's. Uh, so so basically, people can go on doing what they were doing before, um, except for large scale blood sacrifices. But there again, you've already got you've already got the blood of Jesus. That mm -hmm. um, that's pretty easily moved across as well, um, in one way or another. It should make it as easy as possible. Yeah, absolutely. It, rather, rather than trying to wipe it out, that causes trouble. Mm -hmm. Much better is to, is to get people to adapt. And we see certainly that Mary changing gradually as she moves up from, from, uh, from the Mediterranean, uh, gradually taking on aspects of the Roman goddesses. Uh, by the time she's reached... Northern Europe, she's become the queen, the queen of heaven, um, and of course, women need to be encouraged to accept Christianity as well. Guy comes back home from the parliament meeting, says we've accepted Christianity today. Oh yeah, meaning what? Uh, well, we have to have a bath, okay, and we don't need a couple of days. Um, oh yeah, and we have to tear we have to tear down the main pillar, which has got a picture of the dog on it. You have got to be kidding. Are we going to tear down the house? <laughs> no way, Jose. <laughs> find a better reason. So you've got to find you've got to sell it um, to in, 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 to, to Christian to, to to pagan people. The good uh, has to not outweigh the bad. Sorry, the good obviously just has to outweigh the bad. It's it's yeah. I guess it's like selling anything. You have to make it seem. Absolutely, and it's going to be a very, very long process. Um, mm. Christianity would like to say it happened immediately. But first of all, you've got to uh, you've got to 
create uh, people who are going to be priests. You've got to teach them. They've got to learn to read. You've got to make Bibles for every area. There's a lot of cows and sheep being killed off here and written. The entire mm-hmm. Bible being written out by hand. Um, and and at the same time, you, you've got to get them to stop their beliefs that if you do certain things, then the field will grow. Are you going to take the risk of not doing that? Mm-hmm. In the winter, when your kids are looking at you saying, Dad, are you not going to do it? Mm. and there's a winter waiting ahead of you uh, and it becomes folklore in a sense something that you do under under the table mm-hmm. and i mean those uh, those such kinds of traditions we can identify even in the 19th century absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah. so that means it, it's been really hard to get rid of them mm-hmm. um and Nature spirits in particular yes yeah, definitely and the nature spirits been... are the ones who are helping you with brewing and baking and Whatever else, they're the, they're, they're the ones that you call on for, for looking after your local field rather than even the big gods. Mm-hmm. These are the ones very difficult to wipe out. Yeah. When when you said then about how Christianity would, would say that it happened overnight, um, I think also going back to kind of like this modern idea amongst kind of like casual people who are interested in this, there's this idea that I guess that the, the pre-Christian sort of pagans put up a fight to the last stand and and were forced to forced into Christianity and they were very much very Viking to the end and refused to give up their pagan ways. That that is is very much an idea that I see repeated over and over again. And I find it infuriating. Um, so yeah, I guess I wanted to to yeah, dispel that. Most most definitely, as I, as I say, they, yes, they robbed monasteries and they killed monks, but it was a bit like a, a bit like an ATM for them. Uh, for the Viking, you, you want some cash, you pop over to the pop over to the local monastery. Killing people—that's something you do. Uh, they're not particularly because they're monks, but well, they, not particularly because you're pagan either. I mean, this is no. something we also see the Christians yeah. doing all over the place, right? So exactly, exactly. <laughs> so so, and they are pretty prepared to sort of. Change idea when, when you've got a, a Norwegian king coming up to you, like, like Oliver Tryggvason, for example, who is a pretty violent warrior king uh, who wants to institute uh, Christianity by the sword. When well, you're a little farmer and he comes down your fjord with a, with a large fleet of Viking ships and he says, "Do you want to be Christian or do you want to die?" Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, your your kids are looking at you, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> And we'd rather you have her stay around. And, and even the the edit, the Halvermal says it's much better to be to have both arms and whatever than to, to even have one arm than to be dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, survival is central for the for the farm when it comes down to it. Not necessarily being being a huge warrior, but just survival. So yeah, you, you say yeah, okay, I'll be Christian. He goes away, and he's not going to come back for a few months. And you can go on with doing doing mm-hmm. things you were doing before. Um, until he sets up a priest and various people down down the field to check on you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so basically, it's not a big problem to, to accept. In Iceland, the, the you'd had a pretty violent guy going around saying the same thing, do you want to be Christian or do you want to die? And they, they just uh, found various ways of in convincing him that we, we'd rather hang around as we are if, it, if it's okay. But then they got a th- had a threat of civil war and had a threat from the king of Norway threatening to, to, to burn the children of certain key leaders if they didn't bring about Christianity. So there's a threat. 
But Icelanders make the decision that rather than having a civil war, yeah, okay, we we can go and wash. We can we can accept this Christianity at the thing place. Mm-hmm. The the other things that were, were set is that you they, they were allowed to go on carrying out children, um, which you needed in a sense because you you don't want too many mouths to feed. You need to survive. You were allowed to go on eating horse meat. Okay, that's not a problem. And you're allowed to go on worshipping in secret. They've been doing that all the time mm-hmm. up until now. Um, so, okay, we can go on worshipping in secret. But the, the main thing for Christianity is that they've got the bridgehead at the national meeting. And then they can even start from there spreading the gospel and working on getting people to, to realize the advantages of this new uh, European religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, they, if you want to survive... But there's no big battle or war against. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's some Saint Olaf. Uh, there is a battle against him, but he's a highly problematic king in Norway anyway. He's got he's got an, an army of, of tramps and whatever around him. At the end, he's not a. The church uses him as a martyr figure, um, and every we find these martyr figures: Thomas of Becket, Saint Olaf, Saint Magnus. It's a useful thing for the church to get hold of a body and keep watching it and not show anybody else and say, this body is not rotting. And then uh, ideally come and visit our place where he is buried. We won't show him to you, but leave some money while you when, while you come and you will go away with blessings from us. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's a great example is, is also Knut, um, yeah. St. Knut in, in, in Denmark, who who's you know, literally killed because he's a warmonger and keeps like raising taxes because he wants to send a fleet to England. And at some point, the rest of the, the Danish Mac is still like, well, fuck this guy. Uh, let, let's stab him in a church. And mm-hmm. and that's how he becomes a saint, right? Uh, right. So, so that's really interesting, actually, that these early warmongers are the ones that become saints in, in mm-hmm. this. But one, one other thing that's interesting to consider is that, um, you know, you, you briefly touched on it, that, that you know, con- converting to Christianity br- uh, brings a lot of advantages, right? Mm. Um, and and this is, this is another uh, misconception, if you ask me, that we see flourishing around this, like, that is that, oh, life was better before Christianity. And then uh, because Christianity brought with it this very repressive, um um uh, you know uh, ideology um which is you know a very reductive thing to say in and of itself christianity is and has been a lot of different things throughout time right so in some cases repressive in other cases not so much it really mm-hmm. depends right mm-hmm. um and i i would say i would want, want to ask you like what what would be um what would be some like you know, advantages to regular people in that time period and if, for, for converting? You're becoming part of a bigger group, um, a part of a sort of in crowd. There's an element of fashion about this too. Um, for women, uh, and, and I, I think women is a key area to examine here, that, that one would think that the image of the old Norse goddess who are very strong ladies and 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 uh, are not governed by anybody, especially the figure of Freya. How on earth uh, she's easily replaced replaced by Mary. But what Mary brings, uh, there's a student of mine who wrote a very fine MA about this, um, which is available online. 
looking at the development and why women should have accepted Christianity, where you have this idea of women being an sort of underdog. Um, but of course, in Christianity, women weren't. Mary wasn't an underdog. Uh, she was the, the, the access to the ear of, of Jesus and God. Um, but also, moreover, one image you don't find, as, as, this, as Olaf, the student of mine, noted in her thesis, um, two other things that we need to bear in mind is, is that you don't see any pictures of birth in Old Norse religion. There's nothing about babies. But the idea of the mother having carried the God inside her womb is a lifting up the image of motherhood in a, mm -hmm. to a very high degree. And, and that also comes birth, with the institutions that support uh, birth, for instance, in monasteries absolutely. and, and, and attached hospitals, right? Absolutely. And, and women who didn't want to be forced into marriage could become, could establish a, a monastery or go there and keep, keep their own independence. Mm -hmm. so, 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 so monasteries um, for, for women, certainly in many cases, as Oliver has, has argued, gave women uh, more elements of independence. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, uh, there was uh, there's there's um, advantages in of, of various kinds that Christianity would have sold mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah, I don't want to go too far off topic, but I think. Again, with like a modern misconception that the Viking Age and Scandinavia was this very equal place for men and women, and and that seems to be something that, that spread a lot, and you see it a lot that there were these almost ahead of their times in equality, and women had the same standing as men, and they could divorce their husband. Is one that I see a lot, mm -hmm. and. Mm. This kind of thing, but I'm certainly of the opinion that I think it's very much a patriarchal society, and I I, I don't see. I mean, patriarchal I to, to, to some degree, um, and certainly in terms of 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 the areas of life, uh, who goes to war, who goes to market, who goes to uh, to do trade. This is the hand the hands of in the hands of men. At the same time, women are looking after the farm mm -hmm. itself. They're in, they are the ones who have the keys uh, to the buildings. They're the ones in charge in charge of the slaves to a certain extent. And we do find, in many cases, uh, in, in Norway, women being buried in ships in Western Norway, and their husbands have clearly gone away to trade and never come back. Mm. And these these are areas where obviously women have a have a, a ruling position in Iceland. Um, you were mentioning farm names. There are farms in Iceland named after women. And if you go down to uh, sagas like Laxdala Saga, you have a very strong woman in, 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 the, in the figure of either Djupulga and, and also Gurun. Um, Who are so there, there were a number of very powerful women, without any question. And these, these women that you mentioned, uh, Unner, for instance, she's, she's a foremother. She's, she's an ancestor to uh, several really important individuals, right? Absolutely. Um, and and we, have, we have women who, who in, in the saga of Eric the Red, for example, um, she goes to America, um, North America with the settlers. She also walks down to Rome mm -hmm. and comes back. So yes, patriarchal to some degree, and certainly there is a development going on over the period that we're looking at, whereby religion seems to be being taken out of the hands of women 
This is the natural earlier religion associated with the land and being moved into the hands of men. As, as these new, uh, the new kingships are taking over with courts and armies of men. Historically, this is also something we have seen in Christianity. Um, you know, uh, at, at, at a certain point, the office of being a priest in Christianity it becomes exclusively male, uh, whereas it wasn't uh, no. at an earlier uh, stage. I can't remember exactly when this happens, but uh, but this is well documented as well. Um, I, I would love to just uh, uh, shift perspective um, um, for a second here, going back to the sources. So when it comes to the... Um, now we've converted to Christianity and, and all of this stuff, right? Um, what is it uh, that makes the poems, the, the poetry, um, and especially Eddic poetry, still relevant and useful in, in the, the, the post-conversion era? Why, why do these poems still exist? <laughs> right, and to a certain extent, why are poems, because uh, the poems that we have many of them are closely associated with Odin, who is not known really in Iceland by the average people. Mm -hmm. And that certainly underlines to my mind, if nothing else, the fact that the people who are passing on these poems and keeping them part of, as part of their learning their craft as, as the rock musicians of their time, you've got to learn the blues licks and whatever else if you're going to be, if you're going to be a heavy metal guy. Mm -hmm. um, you've, so you've got to learn the poetry. You have to learn it so you can refer to it. So they're the ones who are passing on this material. And this is why Snorri is trying to, to get it recorded, a little bit like the Grimms are, are encouraging people to collect folklore in the 19th century before it disappears. Um, so it's, it's, it's hanging around with just a number of people here and there. So we do, Snorri really only has about three or four Eddic poems in front of him, but the Codex Regius is clearly involved picking up material from a number of people. Mm -hmm. um, and little little collections of poems which are put together in one work in the mm -hmm. end. So yeah, it's it's it, it it has value for the poets. It, it's like people keeping on folklore, certainly. Poems like Havamal are collections of proverbs when it comes down to it. It's very similar to and if anybody knows Hamlet by Shakespeare, when Polonius is telling Laertes how to behave when he goes off to school, he gives him a long list of Proverbs. This is what Havamal contains. Don't get too drunk. Watch your money. Don't say anything stupid. Um, don't try and be too clever. Um, better to have a small place than a big one. Don't don't overdo it. Don't boast too much. These are very natural pieces of advice. Mm -hmm. Still, still very applicable today. Absolutely. No binge drinking here. <laughs> <laughs> that's it you know what um, it turns you into <laughs> absolutely those, those assholes of the football the other week i think is what it oh, turns you into absolutely <laughs> <laughs> so you you touched on odin which i really want to speak about um and you said that the idea of how he wasn't very i guess well known in iceland there isn't many places named after him um so I think anybody who who you only have to Google Odin or Google anything to do with this, you automatically see the idea that Odin is the all father, the the almost you know the the top dog, the alpha, the man who's in charge. He right. rules everything. Everybody answers to him. 
Um, and that's very much the idea that stands, I think, to most people. Um, now, how true, how true is that? Or is it a case that it's Odin was in the, or at least the stories of Odin were in the right place at the right time, and he's gone down in immortality as the, the chieftain just because they just so happened to be the ones that were there? <laughs> like say, right place, I right think, time. Yeah, I, I think in the simplest way of looking at it, as a ruler, you want to control. You want to control the media, uh, as we see to a certain extent in England at the moment, and and certainly it used to be with Berlusconi in Italy, and and of course other countries as well. The media at this time are the poets. Um, so to a certain extent, you want to you want to keep under in with them. Um, now, as these these these. Uh, these new rulers, the, the, the name, the All-Father, is, as I mentioned earlier on, it's exactly what the new rulers were turning themselves into, the father of a pseudo-family. So turning themselves to a certain extent into Olden um, would, would have been something that was pretty, pretty effective uh, to underline why you are so important, why you're so powerful, why people should fight for you. So yes, that's to a certain degree, those images that we have would have echoed, I would say the West Norwegian court, maybe Denmark, but then the, the likelihood is that in Denmark, it would have been slightly different. If Snorri's Edda had been written in Denmark or in Sweden, it would have been a very different book. Mm -hmm. There's little question about that. In a sense, um, I mean, you could say that uh, it was, right? Saxo wrote a mythology too, in a sense. And it, it, when you start looking into the details, it is actually quite different from what Snorri is, is writing. Yeah, and, and, and the, the problem partly there is that Saxo is also using Icelanders as his sources. So you're going to have a number of shared elements, but also a number of different things mm -hmm. coming out of there. So that, that idea of, of, the, of, the, of the pantheon, would have reflected the hall again, where you have people from different gods. But it's a very good move to start say, start saying, okay, you believe in your gods, but actually, my god's the father of your gods. Mm -hmm. uh, initially, you've, you've just got it wrong slightly. And Christianity does the same thing later on. Yeah, you've got your gods, but that was just by a mistake, you're misunderstanding. Uh, mm -hmm. So you're not total idiots. But there again, actually, if you'd known about Christianity, you'd have accepted it a long time before. That's the real religion. Yours is a something that's been made up. Um, so, 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 didn't know any better. Right. So, so, so essentially, oh, this, this God you have over here, uh, well, it's not actually a God. It's just a saint, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You do that. The, the saints take over from the gods later on. You mm -hmm. can have your little, your perfectly private saint. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, the, the, the idea of turning Odin into the father of everybody is part of this. So yeah, uh, it's I can't remember exactly the question that, that that you had just now, but certainly it's it it's reflects a pretty small part of society that existed mm -hmm. and was part of this development that was going on. I guess I guess what I'm wondering is whether people in living in Scandinavia in the Viking Age would have seen Odin the way that we see Odin. No, I guess well, uh, the average people they they would almost certainly heard of him. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in the same way, if we just look at uh, the, the writers of earlier times who say that Odin really is Mercury, as they put together the gods with, 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 to try and explain them through um, reference to, to Roman gods, we have, we have um, uh, Thor being, being compared to Mars or Jupiter as the, as the big ruler. Odin is compared to Hermes or Mercury. Now, that's not a terribly important god. 
Mm-hmm. But he is, what's great about him, he is the god of trade. He's the god of uh, medicine. He's the god of sort of uh, weird shit, mm-hmm. uh, is, is the other element, which is pretty neat for, for an inside group. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hell's angels-like group with, into which you have to be initiated within secret knowledge. Um, one can see how, the, how this, this takes place. And especially a god who, like the idea, the idea of, the, of the one-eyed god, which interestingly enough, very strange, isn't in the poetry is rarely referred to as the blind god. Hardly any re- reference to him as being the one-eyed god or the blind god. That seems to be a development as well over time, because Odin doesn't only have a secret service on his shoulders in the form of ravens, which can listen to you. Never know the raven down the road. Is that one of his or not? It's a perfect way of saying Big Brother's watching you. And um, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that, because that's one thing I remember from your article that you said that it's such a good way to control people because ravens right. are everywhere. And yeah, by yeah. saying that Odin's eyes and ears are ravens, then like you say, you don't know which ones are his and which ones aren't. And no. I never saw it as that. And I found that fascinating when uh, you pointed it out. Yeah, exactly. And they've also learned, the German tribes have learned from the Roman emperors too. One way a Roman emperor can't travel around all of the Roman empire, but what he can do is put statues of himself in every town. So he is there. He can put himself on the coins that are in your pocket. So he is there. Mm-hmm. In a sense, Odin is doing that. And other, other aspects of Odin are worth bearing in mind to do with the eyes. Uh, yes, he, he sees both worlds. There's one eye which is dark, which sees into the world of death. One eye which, is, which is, sees this world. But in the same way, as and this, this, if anybody has ever talked to somebody who's lost an eye, or actually has cross-eyed in some ways, an element of David Bowie about this, problematic of talking to Bowie, um, which eye are you looking at? It, one feels uncomfortable mm-hmm. being there. And this is what Odin, the whole feeling of Odin is to make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. To not be sure, which is what a ruler wants to do as well. You don't want to feel too comfortable with them. Odin, I love that characteristic of Odin. Odin is, is, if you die in a battle, okay, he decided that he just wants you in his world. If you win, yeah, he wants you. It's thanks to him as well. Um, he wins both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and apart from the fact he's the worst of farmers, this guy. I've compared him to my students, for my students, that this guy... It's a bit like if anybody remembers the drunken Boris Yeltsin in the past. This is Odin who lives off wine alone and, and <laughs> drinks and speaks in weird poetry all the time and hangs out talking to a talk, talking to a head. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> this is a this is a pretty weird guy, uh, but powerful. You take him on as your as your god over the other pretty straightforward ones. You're introducing. Yeah, some pretty weird shit into this. This is, this is a good way to <laughs> so, <laughs> way, way to establish yourself as a ruler. If so, if uh, the average Joe in you know Scandinavian Viking age wouldn't have really heard of Odin, and then there isn't many places named after him in Iceland, and how does he get to be the pinnacle god? How does that happen? Through the media, um, and the media are the poets, and we have their poems that are written down. Um, so, so, so they're the ones who pass on this poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, as a, this is how it, it gets passed, passed on and kept. But it's uh, also, I mean, Snorri favors certain poets, right? He he really likes 
Jodelbert, for instance. Right, right? and he's, he's connected to Eyjad Skallagrimsson. He has yes. poets in his family. Yeah. He, he, he wants to make, uh, he named, he, he and his family named themselves after Olden and, and, and uh, sort of Valhart, Olsgaard, or, uh, I can't remember the name of his, his, his um, place he stayed uh, out of Thinkvedlin. That was a reference to the, to the. That's right, yes. As yes. well. Yeah. So it's connecting himself to kingship. This is again why. Yeah, and that comes from you know ownership of a Borgafjörður, um, you know, or Borg in Borgafjörður, and yeah. and all of those connections. Yes, of course, that makes that makes so much more sense. So, so Aid Skattekrimsson's family, they were perhaps the Odinic family in in uh, in Iceland in the early times. He's certainly bringing connections with Norwegian royalty uh, within the genes and mm. stories about him and his connections. So granddad, he was the one who did this. He went to Norway. He had these stories, these poems. This is how you connect with granddad is to learn his art of poetry. Mm -hmm. and, and and in a sense, if we look at the poets and, and what gave them their power, we one wonders to a certain extent, how on earth did they get a whole warrior hall to shut up? Uh, and stop throwing bones at them. So, uh, okay, there can be Einar, <laughs> and you have an element of filling a hall just being Einar Selvig. But again, it's the words that you present. But these guys, a little bit like Norwegian fiddlers in later times, and a little bit like Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson learns the blues at the crossroads from the devil. Mm -hmm. These guys picked up their art from Odin. Okay. They, in a sense, they came in like Odin as travelers from outside. When they opened their mouths, people knew that poetry was in, was closely connected to magic. So you don't mess with these guys. They have power and they learned. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, they could even take the role of Odin as they started performing. And we get this with fiddlers in later times. You've got a number of stories of, of poets who can and can bring magic to the hall and make make a, make an earl's beard fall out. Mm -hmm. um, so they carried that they carried this magical art with them mm -hmm. uh, as uh, the musicians, the, the powerful musicians of the time, the Robert Johnsons of the time. Mm -hmm. So why do you think that that hasn't shaken kind of because it's still still to this day, Odin is obviously seen as the, the top god to most people. Yeah. Um, so why do you think that stigma kind of hasn't been able to? to change if that's if it is just a case of almost no, I don't want to say mis misidentity but it's it's just he's, he's, not, he's the neat, neat figure um, but the, the, this is the, 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 the this is the material that we have in our hands that's what we're left with along, along with the archaeology and along with the place names and, and things of this kind this is the most easily accept, uh, accessible stuff this is the bible in a sense the way that snod has been passed on um so and the way the snod is being presented to people this was the this was the religion of the of, of the vikings um mm. but uh without any question about it. partly because it's also difficult to deal with this idea of everybody having a slightly different religion mm. people people would much rather have this book in their hands it's simple yeah. to have this rather than something that's changeable that that's one thing we said we said on the podcast quite often that People want things to be nice and easy and neat and just fit in a nice little box. And then you can say that's how it is and, and forget about it. And they don't always want to be challenged on their ideas or even be willing to 
to change their ideas because I'm like before I started doing this, I was very much of the opinion of everybody else because I wasn't any better. I didn't know any better. I didn't have all these hours, you know, hundreds of hours of conversations with with people like yourself and, and other scholars that I'm very lucky to sit in and be able to ask these questions. I wasn't in this very much privileged position now, um, so I my, my opinion has changed light years from where it originally was you know there's things i know now that i i look back then i think what the fuck why the fuck did i think that no uh, and, and we're all still learning it's the key point uh, as uh, as matthias would say as well uh, i learned from my students um who were coming at this material from a different angle and and uh, the key rule is as i've said to my students as well just never trust an academic blindly just go out and read this material yourself really listen to what's said but then go to the material yourself, take a look, read, and then decide for yourselves. But I don't want people just just uh, listening to what I say and trusting it blindly. No, we want I, we we learn from our students. We work together, and and we enjoy hanging out over a beer and just disagreeing with each other, right, Martin? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's it. This is but the I, best. I think people have Sorry. to be willing to learn, though. That's that's also yeah. the, the key thing because there are so many people that I come across when I when I try and promote the podcast in particularly in like Facebook groups. You know, I try and put a podcast out in these huge spheres of thirty, forty thousand people and, and try and you know push what we're doing. But there are some people who who they they've read it online and that is it. They are not changing their mind and it doesn't come from a reputable source and they're very much tunnel vision and they're not open to to listening to, to other things and other academics and and that's what i find quite quite dangerous but also quite sad that they're not just able to or want to learn or want to listen to other ideas and, right. and just go back to the original sources it's, it's mm. just it's just the key element so certainly don't trust somebody who look it be it me or anybody else who says something go back to the original sources have mm. a listen to imas and, and listen to verusval and 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 be out in nature somewhere and feel it's a good place absolutely. to start absolutely so before before we wrap up um i mean the last thing i want to ask you is have we got it all wrong and is thor really the the man is he the one in the vikings that they would have looked up to as the the pinnacle god the almost i don't want to say like the jesus figure but that kind of level of god I'm not going to give you a single simple answer. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't expect that. No, for for for, for many people, yes, um, no question. Um, but uh, uh, we also need to be aware that Thor, the image that we have of him, is is a figure that's also under construction, um, as, as has been said in a recent Declan Targets shown in a recent um, PhD. How when he comes to Iceland, he knows he's no longer the god of thunder. There is no thunder yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's changed. This guy who goes wandering around in a in a wagon, dragged by goats. I've, I've ever tried to travel around in a wagon, travel but drawn by goats. Come on, <laughs> and you can see they see the giants waiting there. When, when the hell is he going to get here? Oh, he's coming <laughs> over there when he can get the goats in order. And he's got a hammer for God's sake. What 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 what, what do you do? You're supposed to hit nails with a hammer. Nobody <laughs> nobody uses a hammer as a as a much better use an axe. When it comes down to it, so we have elements, much older elements, going back to chariots on one side, going back to Hephaestus and um, on one side in Rome as being the hammer, the the, mm. the blacksmith. He doesn't do any blacksmith. You never see him repairing his chariot, no. uh, sort of, <laughs> t- t- taking the wheel off and, 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 and getting a new a new tire put onto it. He's, he's left left all of this, but he's a construction 
over a long period of time, and he would have gone on changing. Mm-hmm. And certainly, he wouldn't be wearing Viking clothes nowadays. So I don't know what, what he'd be. He'd probably, he'd have a hat like Matis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm sure. Have, I don't know if he'd have your your T-shirt here at the moment. Um, <laughs> um, he'd have his own name on the front of it. Yeah, That's it, yeah. <laughs> so. Man. This is this actually this is interesting because it uh, hints at something that I've been thinking for a while. So um, I, I I think that uh, that the, the theory that you present about how uh, in around the 500s we have the rise of of sort of the patriarch of a of of a war clan or or, mm-hmm. or comitatus or whatever we want to call that. Um, but what precedes that? That's really the uh, that's that's something that that uh, that I find really interesting in terms of what Odin is as a figure, and my 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 own home baked theory is actually that a a lot of the uh, uh, competition between uh, uh, Dionysian cults and um, Hermetic cults and uh, Jesus is also in there and Mitras as well in the Roman Empire slowly precipitates north and we do see sort of a um some hints if you ask me of a dionysian odin in the two three hundreds in the danish area where we also find so many uh, uh wonderful um roman uh, drinking uh, bowls right Something that it looks like the orgy has come to Scandinavia, and I think Dionysus in, a, in an Odin form uh, has joined us there. Do you think there's anything to an early Odin as, as sort of like a mystery cult Odin? Um, orgies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you read Ovid, it's uh, if you read Ovid and then then, then read it next to Snorri. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. Obvious I, 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 all, all of these gods uh, are going to be under construction, drawing in elements from other religions, and and, and they're all over time are uh, changing and developing in accordance with the needs of the society in question. I think. Um, that, that there may well be, I think it makes sense, as my good friend Jens Peter Schacht has argued, that maybe uh, a figure like Odin could have been taken on by war bands, by Germanic war bands, as they left home, left the land, and headed out into in, in going south. Uh, that this, they, that they called on a, 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 a strange figure of darkness and war and whatever, a, a magic, actually, essentially, rather than war. He takes on war later on. Um, that that he's, he's like a warband god. Maybe you've got elements of Mithras in there and whatever else. We just don't know. We have too little, too little information. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly connected in some... The Romans saw a connection, it seems, between him and elements of, of Hermes or, or, or Mercury. Yeah, that, that's, that's why I'm cult. like, you know, this sounds like mystery cult. Yeah, um, I think mystery cult all the way through everything about yeah. it. So even even when we come to come to the come to the uh, to the war bound mm-hmm. uh, and the court, mystery cult says definitely to make your group different to every, anybody else. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Perfect. I think that's. I think we're there. I think that's the the episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, one thing I, I think I just kind of want to say is that it, it appears the pre-Christian sort of religion. It's almost its own living thing, and that it's it's ever evolving and changing, and it's different depending on your geographical location 
all these different aspects. So we can't put any, and we have to be very careful of putting very much ideals and, and, and definite things on it. Um, and just almost be comfortable in saying we we don't really know, I guess, on some aspects of it or it's complicated. Well, and as we know, but that's the same thing with the generalization about Vikings. That old Scandinavians were Vikings. Vikings were a particular bunch of young mm-hmm. guys uh, who were heading out. Um, most people were quite happy to live a peace at home when it comes mm-hmm. down to it. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I think it's worth remembering the the tie, like the length of time we're, we're talking about as well. Um, it's so easy to say a hundred years. It takes less than a second to say it, but in reality, that's a long fucking time. So just the Viking Age alone, what you're talking 350 plus years, but then obviously you've got the hundreds of years before that. Um, if you look at how much things have changed from now back to the 1700s alone, um, you know, it's wildly different. So it, it, it's fair to remember that just in the Viking Age, quote-unquote, then things changed dramatically just in there alone. So it's even more wild to say they believe this one set of parameters Absolutely. and that's it. And if you put, put a farmer from a farmer from um, Jutland, Jutland in, in Denmark together with a farmer from the Viking Fjord, certainly the farmer in Denmark will not have believed in mountain giants. Mm. There just aren't any <laughs> down there. They're going to be a different shape. Then you go off to the forests of Sweden. Um, so that if if Snorri had been written in the, any of these different areas, it would have been a very different work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, if, if if we were in the Danish area, it would be all about water, right? And marshes and yep. you know, flooding and that kind of stuff. It's yep. very obvious that, that, that a lot of the stories that Snorri is familiar with, um, um, the ones that he relates in prose, they are... If you ask me, they're either, you know, they're coming from Norway or some of them have even been generated in Iceland at some point, right? Because they have so much to do with mountains. They've been adapted to Iceland. And actually people coming from abroad, when they come to Iceland, are coming to a place which has no history of any kind. It's got no place names. It smells different. It's got earthquakes. It's got volcanoes going on here. Do you know that the nature spirits speak the same language as the nature, nature spirits at home? Mm-hmm. And you're also coming here with a bunch of Irish slaves and Scottish slaves with you who have, a, again, totally different beliefs mm-hmm. when it comes down to it. So it, these stories, are, when they, you're naturally going to bring your language with you and with your language, your concepts, your understanding of the world, and you're going to try and transpose it in Iceland. But the key difference is that even though the Icelanders are recording this stuff, this material has much shallower roots here than it did, does in mainland Scandinavia. Another reason for writing it down, mm-hmm. for, for, for making it easier, in fact, for Christianity to take over, because you've left home with all of the memories that home has in connection with the old gods. Uh, so the situation in Iceland was quite different in all sorts of ways. Perfect. I, I feel like we could... Uh talk for another hour and a half we need so, some beer. <laughs> Terry, please, please come back in the future and we will uh, talk about some other interesting subjects nice to be chatting with you folks good to see you and everybody Likewise. else who's around too okay absolutely yeah. thank, thank you. you very much terry um and it, it just felt like a very easy conversation as well mm-hmm. I, talk, I, I talk too much but nonetheless um, no it, <laughs> it's it better nice. it's better when the guests talk too much <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm gonna to go and get myself a beer now um 
Thank yes. you very much, Terry. Thank you. Great to see you. Nice to meet you as well, kind of, I guess. We'll meet up in person someday. We will, absolutely. Awesome. Um, okay. Matthias, where can everyone find you? Now that you're not on Facebook anymore. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Instagram, period. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I, I, I end up just sending you all the memes that we get from the uh, the Facebook group anyway. I, I, I love seeing the memes. Um, that's the that's the only thing that's not um, uh, bad. Um, or th- yeah, that's the only thing that sucks about not being on Facebook, uh, that I don't get the memes. But uh... <laughs> And they seem to be getting better and better, which is quite scary. I don't know where they're going with this. I love the one that you sent with uh, that's a spinoff of Between Two Ferns, Between mm-hmm. Two Fjords with, uh, with the... With a line, with our heads put in it, dots over and everything. Yeah, yeah. Our heads. I love it. Was, I think that was Kid and Huber that did that one. I've got to shout his name out because that must have taken some some time. And that was uh, one of my personal favorites. I mean, if you want to, if you want to check out these memes and just, it's just a, a cool. I guess it's one of the Facebook groups that hasn't been tainted just yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's literally just Nordic Mythology Podcast uh, Facebook. You can find it. Um, again, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram. Not a mythology podcast reviews. If you if you want to leave us, um, or if you could leave us a five star rating, positive review, and uh, really helps us bump up the charts, helps people find the show, and helps the podcast keep growing. Obviously, the website's just nordmythologypodcast.com. Uh, same on YouTube, not mythology podcast um, channel on there. And then we we've made a few changes to our Patreon, uh, Mateus, this last week, which is I think is quite fun and exciting. Um, so you know, we, we we reached out to a few different people and took some feedback. We've we've dropped the the prices on our tiers to hopefully give better value and also bring in new patrons. Um, but the biggest change and the most the the, the 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 most fun change, I guess, is that the Vikings Watch Long Show will now be a bi-weekly show. Um, and then in those two extra monthly slots, what we're going to do is we're going to record story time episodes where we go through the sagas um and people can listen to it. so we're going to pick popular saga you're going to probably the one probably reading it out um and then we're going to talk about it and they're going to go up exclusively on the patreon for people to, to check out after um because with the with the the vikings watch longs as much fun as it is it does rely on people being able to get there live and watch it um so this story time is obviously going to give people that value and they can pick it up after it at their own leisure, I guess. So, yeah, I think that's it. I think it is. There's an awesome show. Yeah, really good. Mm-hmm.